Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 78 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today, I have another survivor who is going to be sharing her story with us. Julie, thank you so much for coming on and being willing to tell us about what's happened in your life. Thanks so much for having me, Natalie. This is, um, you know, it's it's a somewhat of a sad circumstance, a difficult thing to talk about, but, um, you know, I really have prayed and, and sought the Lord on this, and um, I just thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Yes, it is not. It's not like the, those podcasts where you get to interview someone about you know making your home a more beautiful place or <laughs> or something like that. Um, but however, it is very encouraging because I know that some people say these are their favorite podcast episodes because yeah. it gives them hope for their own lives. It help they if they can see that someone else has made it and is surviving, then they have hope for themselves. Okay, so I have, are you ready for these questions? I have some questions for you. I am. Okay, so the first one is tell us how you met your husband and if you noticed any red flags during the time that you were getting to know him. Yes, so we met on eHarmony. I was 26 years old and he was 29. He had never had a girlfriend before, um, so I was his first girlfriend. And our relationship was long distance during that time. we lived about two hours apart. So we would spend weekends where I would go and stay with his friends and he would come here and stay with my friends, or we would go on adventures in the outdoors, like backpacking, kayaking with groups of friends. So there was kind of this almost like great, I wouldn't say it was a great romance intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, but it was a a great physical adventure um, where he would just kind of sweep me off my feet and take me to North Carolina to go, backpacking or kayaking. Um, and so, um, I would say the first red flag, um, and this is probably the, this is the one example I'll give that's more detailed of a specific example during this interview, because I do want to give people a context to understand kind of how this relationship has, has, um, operated, I guess, and what I've kind of gone through. But, um, the first big red flag was about two months into our dating relationship. Um, we had a committed relationship at that point. And um, throughout the week, that week, um, I knew that coming weekend, I wasn't going to see him. He was going to go kayaking with some of his kayaking friends down in North Carolina. And um, he just kind of wanted the weekend just to hang with them and not, you know, there were weekends that we kind of took a break and just did our own thing. And throughout the week, he kind of emailed me bits and pieces. So what I have found in this relationship is I, I usually get about 5% of the story. Um, and that was the case in this, in this example. Um, I, he, he emailed me one day and said, you know, I'm not really going to have my phone on me this weekend. Um, but I'll call you when I get back on Sunday, which I thought was kind of weird to tell me in the middle of the week. And also he always had his phone on him. It was just kind of a weird, like, preface. And then a little bit later in the week, he said, you know, there's only going to be one other person going. Um, 
now. So I just wanted to let you know, you know, it's going to be me and one other person. And I also thought that was a little weird because he didn't tell me who it was. Um, and, you know, we, we, at that point I had built friends with these, this group of people too. Um, so usually he would have just said, Hey, it's this friend or this friend. And then on Friday at five 30, as the friend pulled into the driveway, he emailed me and said, she's here. Gotta go. And oh he went all the way to North Carolina for an entire weekend getaway with a female friend from our kayaking group of friends and spent the entire weekend with her with, with no regard for me. Um, and that, um, was deeply painful, obviously, but what, what that kind of reflects of even our long-term marriage is that decisions have been made repeatedly, um, where I only get 5% of the story. I get little bits and pieces of, of the truth. And sometimes there's even omissions in those truths. Like it's, he's twisting it, but then it always is the end result always is he is going to do what he wants to do with no regard for how that would impact me emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And so even when he came back, he had already, he had already told me, I will call you at 945. And I know he doesn't want to talk on the phone past 10. So he had already hedged off. This will be a 15 minute conversation. Pretty much don't challenge me on this. Um, so that is, you know, probably most of the listeners on here are like, why did you not break up with him? And of course, that's exactly how I feel, how I feel now is, you know, of course, I love my children. I wouldn't have my children if we had not gotten married. And so, you know, we get, we'll get into that later. But um, of course, I should have ran for the hills. I did not see how big this red flag was because in my mind, I'm like, he's never had a girlfriend. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know that this is incredibly hurtful when you're in a committed relationship. He's just totally used to being an independent single guy. Um, but even as a Christian man, I would think that his boundaries would have been better than to go off with a girl one-on-one to a weekend um, retreat, so to say, um, you know, he did take pictures that they slept in separate tents and, you know, I want to make sure that people know who are, who listen. He wasn't, it never came across that he was being infidelous. It was more just a complete, I want to go do this. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm not, I, I don't have to answer to you. I can do whatever I want. Um, so that over time, you know, that was, that chipped away at trust. Um, he, overall, his personality, very kind and gentle and quiet. And because of my childhood upbringing with a lot of overt abuse and, and early relational experiences and romantic relationships were more overt, I, I was very charmed and taken back, you know, taken by this kind and gentleness. It, Throughout 11 and a half years of marriage, he's never yelled at me. And I know that's also weird, (laughs) but he really has not raised his tone. He has not been harsh. It has all been very 
quiet, subtle, covert tactics. Um, so my hope going into marriage with him was that the, that he would become a more open and connected person um, because that was also, he was very reluctant in our dating to be transparent, open, and to have conversations that went deeper than what are we going to do on the next weekend. Um, my hope was when we got married that he would just be kind of caught up and swept away in the oneness of marriage and that we would have this great intimacy and great vulnerability. And that never happened. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's listening to this, who's single, bear that in mind. Usually guys will be who they are after they're married, that the same person that they were before they were married. And I, I can totally relate to that thinking, oh, and we kind of think as women, we kind of think we'll have this really great influence on them. You know, we'll help them to be all they were meant to be. That's our duty and our role as their, you know, their wife. But okay. Yes. All right. So um, what about your church or other Christians in your life? Did you get any messages from them that contributed to your view of marriage before you were married? Yes. So I loved your recent podcast with Gretchen Baskerville, the life-saving divorce author, when she brought up the books that are, were very popular back in the late 90s, early, um, you know, 2000, 2000 to 2002. When I was in college, those were the books that we were all reading. I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Passion and Purity, Lady in Waiting. All of these books kind of painted a picture of submission. You don't challenge the man. You don't ask him. You don't take initiative in the relationship towards the man. You let him pursue you completely and you submit to his leadership in every area and you trust his walk with the Lord to, to the Lord and you trust your own walk with the Lord to the Lord. And this man will lead you as a Christian man. And as long as you submit to that model, you're going to have this beautiful lifelong marriage that really will be pretty free of conflict or problems which is not true. <laughs> um, right. And I also, you know, my Christian friends, we prayed and we focused a ton on like guarding our hearts. That was a big scripture that we would pray for each other, that we wouldn't go chase after these men or, or pursue, but that we would let them come to us. And then if a man felt from the Lord that he was supposed to pursue us, that it, it would just be so clear. And um, so we very much spiritualized even the dating process that if a guy really felt strongly for us, for one of us and wanted to pursue that it probably was our husband. Um, so in a way it almost kind of, it can, it, at, at the time in my experience, it can almost be unfortunate that our blinders are almost on beforehand. Like all we care about is, or at the time, all I cared about was that he was a Christian man and pursuing me. Um, so there was just a real strong focus on that and, and even on marriage within the church. Um, another formative part of my kind of, I guess, um, understanding doctrine and understanding biblical, uh, you know, what they call biblical counseling approaches in the church, more in the, um, conservative church. It's a, it's a process called nuthetic counseling, which I'm sure you've heard of where, mm -hmm. um, Everything that the church leadership counsel you in is through the Bible and anyone can do this. They don't need to have a license in social work 
or a counseling license. They, anybody can go to some trainings and do this biblical counseling. And basically the approaches in that are the focus is everyone brings 50, 50, 50 percent of the sin to the table in a marriage. Um, it, it's a 50, 50 issue. You know, you got to look at the plank in your own eye before the speck in your husband's eye. And, you know, they also teach that Christ will always redeem a Christian marriage, that there's really no, really, they're teaching that there's not really um, a reason to get divorced because you're Christians and Christ will change you. Mm -hmm. You're always going to be able to be changed by Christ. And, And so that is another thing they teach. And so there's just really no room for divorce or, or going there. Um, it's very much kind of shunned and, and put into a category of that is like the ultimate wrong thing. Um, the last and most profound, um, contributing view, I guess, of marriage before I was married was the pastor who married us point blank told us in premarital counseling, he would not marry us if we were open to divorce. Um, and so we had to promise him that we would never get divorced. And then I know this is so weird. It's like you have to, it's like, it's such a, um, a blatant trying to control the universe. Like why do people try to control the universe? It's not, how is that anybody's business? What other people do down the road? So it wouldn't matter what either one of you guys did in the relationship. You just could never get divorced. Why? Because this pastor said you couldn't. It's yes. just so ludicrous. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry for interrupting. It's, it's fine, but it gets worse. So I then on our actual wedding day, after our wedding ceremony, when, after we had said our vows, before our family and friends, it was declared by this pastor that we had promised we would never get divorced. And he even said if they have a fight or, you know, a, a lover's quarrel and they want to come to your home in the middle of the night, you send them right back to each other to work out their differences. Wow. And so that did profound spiritual <sighs> damage to me. And to this day, I do care about that pastor. I want to make that very clear. And to this day, I don't want to expose my husband or harm anyone with this podcast interview. My motive is truly to help survivors and to share my story, not to sit here and, you know, talk about all these things, but, but, but it did profound damage because what that did is it etched in stone on me. I will never get divorced. Mm -hmm. That is not an option for me. And, and in fact, that was part of the spiritual abuse I went through beforehand. Well, and here's the other thing it does is it, it causes people to feel judgmental of others who get divorced as well, which is not coming from a place of unconditional love and, and care and empathy for people and for their individual experiences and situations. And so, and a lot of people, I don't think that a lot of Christians understand what abuse is or that abuse is a thing or that that's actually the number one reason why women of faith get divorced or initiate divorces because they're being abused. They don't understand that. They're not aware of that, which is, you know, it's, it's ignorance and I understand, but because of their ignorance, they're just passing on these ideas that 
that are that, that are destroying they're not, and they're not just destroying us in that we we'll, we feel like we can't get divorced but like i said they're destroying us in that we i remember feeling judgmental towards a friend of mine whose husband had been, was a serial cheater and was um and serially cheating with men and i was tell and i told her well you can't get divorced Mm-hmm. And I look back on that now. So I get it. I get it. I, I know what it's like to be in that environment and to live like that. And, to, and I felt judgmental towards her because she was considering getting out of that relationship. I had to go back later and apologize and ask for her forgiveness for that. But um, yeah, it creates all these judgmental feelings in us about yeah. other people. And Natalie, that's I can relate to that exact story as far as I had a friend who was in an abusive marriage who I said the same things to. I was for years trying um, to help them reconcile and I've had to go back and ask her forgiveness as well. Um, And she is now divorced. Um, But it took, it took 10 years of battle and the church and me being a part of that church saying, I'm never going to support you getting divorced because I know that's not what God wants. And now I have, in turn, as a survivor, gone to her and said, please forgive me. It was wrong. And, and I have learned so much since then mm-hmm. that, that I was a part of oppressing you. Yeah. And I'm so sorry, you know, yeah. so I understand, <laughs> I understand that humbling. Um, yeah. So we're not coming here saying, you know, we have it all together. No, we were, we were also part of, I don't want to say we were brainwashed, but we were part of this this following of you don't get divorced. You don't do this. Um, you know, yeah, it's a system of, it's a system of belief that, you know, many people, I think it's rooted in what good intentions, but it just, it's, it's really based on, in, on ignorance over the reality of what's going on out there in the real world, in real individual people's lives. Yeah. When we could go down that rabbit trail, but Let's get back to your story. Okay. What coping strategies? So now, so you got married to him in spite of the red flags, in spite of what the church was telling you, you got married to him. What, um, well, what are some of the ways that he abused you? So I won't go into a ton of the nitty gritty details as I shared. I, you know, some of those details just truly belong, you know, with, between me and a counselor and also, um, you know, my husband needs to work through his issues um, and to protect my children. But I will say that from the beginning, I was misled um, by him and that he over the 11 year and a half years of marriage has proven he is more comfortable living with a private hidden life than to have a vulnerable, transparent marriage. Um, The pattern that repeated itself many, many times over was things would come to light. He would profess repentance. He would seek forgiveness. And then he would promise to never lie again. And unfortunately, it was all talk. He just got better at hiding. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that this was abuse because I, he never raised his voice at me. And in my mind, I, I, I didn't understand that someone can never raise their voice at you and still do covert abuse that does real and profound damage to the soul, mind and heart of another person. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was very confused for a long time why this hurt so badly. And 
why I felt inside that I was pretty much just being crushed. Like my soul was crushed and I could not understand. Um, He never called me names. He never yelled or overtly abused me. Um, And so, and I have experienced those things in other relationships. And so that quiet, hidden and intentional covert abuse, I can say today has has made more lasting marks on my soul than even the overt stuff I had experienced in childhood and in relationships beforehand. Um, So I always just also another thing um, I know other people have shared this on your podcast that I really have appreciated their stories, but I felt as though I was not allowed to be a real person with real feelings and needs. Um, One quick example is that when my mom passed unexpectedly, I spent two weeks in the hospital with her and he probably showed up for 20 minutes a couple times other than the initial surgery and her actual passing. He was there over a two-week period, maybe for 20 minutes. And it wasn't that our kids needed to be watched. Tons of people were offering to keep the kids. He just was much more comfortable being reclusive and avoiding connection than being by my side. Mm, yeah. I'm so sorry. Thank you. It was hard. (laughs) So what did you do to survive? How did you cope? What did you, what were some of your strategies to cope? Um, I would always call one close friend in particular. She knows every single instance of deception and the, how the pathology kind of displayed itself. Um, her husband's also a pastor, um, in Kentucky, a conservative Baptist pastor. And, um, they have counseled me through this whole time and, and they have never done damage to me. They have always counseled me with grace and, um, believed me and believed in the major issues that were at hand. Um, I've gone to counseling for the last eight years myself. We did attempt to do some marital counseling. He quickly bowed out. He has attempted to go to counseling a couple times, but quickly bows out. Um, We did seek help from the church. Um, Although I knew the message was Christian marriages can always heal and be saved. Mm -hmm. And that that common myth, every marriage is a 50-50 sin problem. My sin is just as much of the problem. And I got to look at that plank in my eye before the speck in his. So, you know, those were some of my initial, how I tried to reach out to people, how I internally coped was 12 years of cognitive dissonance. Um, I truly, the reality of my world did not match what I believed about my husband. He was kind, he was gentle, he was patient, but yet the reality was he was unable to show empathy or presence when my mom suddenly passed away. There wasn't remorse for repetitive lying. He didn't take, he didn't show any desire to take those necessary steps to get some help to save the marriage. He, he didn't want, he didn't want a close connected life with me. He wanted a private life. That's what he wanted. And so in a way, why did you get married? You know, why, why would you get married if you really want to live like a bachelor um, mm-hmm. is the big thing. Um, you know, my picture, so the cognitive dissonance, the picture in my mind of his good qualities didn't add up to the reality 
that was consistently being brought to light by God. You know, he was good with the kids. He could just describe scripture and doctrine so eloquently. He worked so hard to provide for our family, and he was a servant. He, he likes to help around the house. Um, all those things would kind of focus on to counteract a lot of the areas of emotional, um, you know, emotional neglect and disconnection and, and the, the deception. Um, and there were, there were other areas I won't go into, but, but just, um, I lived, I believe I lived a lot of our marriage feeling like an object. Like I was just kind of there for his satisfaction and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was a human being (laughs) with real needs. Um, and so, you know, but when I thought about all the things I've been taught in the church, I thought, well, emotional disconnection seemed secondary to what I had been taught for years. That was primary maintaining my vows, forgiveness thing, keeping our family together, caring mm-hmm. for other people and laying my own life on the altar, mm-hmm. laying my life down. That's what Jesus did. That's what I need to do. And so, um, you know, during this, this pattern of 11 years of marriage, we would have seasons where I thought he was getting better and I was not, no discoveries were coming out. Um, during these seasons, we continued having children biologically and adopting children. And we even had started the process to do foster care. Um, parenting in general has been an area that I felt like we, we could do it well together. And so in a way, um, that was almost a coping skill, not that we used our children to cope, but more, I was like, well, this is a way we can be missional together, even though our marriage one-on-one is not good on paper, like it's not connected, but guess what? Over here, we can serve children without families and be even more on a mission team together. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it's, it, you know, you never want to adopt or do foster care to try to fix your life. And that's truly not the motive of, our, of my heart in doing that. It was that this is a way this, my husband and I can be a team and, and be on mission together and, and be strong because there were, there were good things. Um, but you know, what I realized over time and, and with discovery after discovery, he wasn't changing and these things were just hidden better. Um, so that's kind of to answer that question. So what did, was there ever a turning point when you decided, okay, this enough is enough? Like, did a light bulb ever go on or was it just kind of a slow, gradual waking up? A light bulb did go on. So two and a half years ago, some major discoveries came out. Um, that were more profound than the ones before um, involving infidelity. And so I was just like, I can no longer bear the burden of a marriage with 5% of the truth and 90% of hiding. And I cannot do this cyclical pattern of you confess the part of the story that you want to confess. You ask for forgiveness, you profess repentance, and then you promise to never lie again and you just continue lying. And so I um, realized at that time I was in an emotionally unhealthy place in my ability to not only parent my children, but to care for myself. I was at that kind of breaking point in my mind where I felt like I was going crazy, which is, Everyone gets there when they are surviving this kind of 
narcissistic abuse. They are, Mm -hmm. they get to a place where they are so spun up in a web of lies, they can't see through the webbing. Mm -hmm. And that uh, during that period of time, I separated for a couple weeks where he stayed with an elder of the church. Um, I won't get into how the church responded. It was a different church at this point that we were at. I'm not going to get into a lot of how they responded, but it, there was damage done. I, um, it was very much, I was the exposer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I was wrong to be exposing and investigating my husband. Um, and, and, and that was deeply damaging for me. It just, it made me less wanting to tell the church anything because, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in a pile of rubble and my emotion, I'm just crumbling and crushed on the floor. And they're telling me you're not being strong enough and you're not being forgiving enough. Um, But what I can say is that that pastor did come alongside and put in protections that my husband did agree with to try to hold him accountable, to try to redeem the areas that were broken and basically to try to decrease any temptation to lie by removing certain things that were the struggle, that were the sin agent um, as far as some of the addiction goes. And so that happened and that was completely accepted and wanted by my husband. He said, I don't trust myself. I need accountability. And he, he promised everything was on the table from that point forward. There would be more no lying. And I made it very clear, this was my attempt to reconcile our marriage. If lies continue, I'm done. So that was like my, this was two and a half years ago. That was my very clear, this is us actually trying to reconcile. (laughs) This isn't like, we're not repeating what we've done in the past. This is like divorce is on the table, but I am willing to try to reconcile this one last time to give it my all. And if you continue the way you have in the past, I can no, I can no longer shoulder this pattern of behavior. Um, so unfortunately, a year and a half after that happened, so this past November, after a year and a half of being deceived, again, It came out that my husband's heart had not changed and that he had been actively hiding and doing the things that he does um, for that whole year and a half. And um, I was crushed, but I was at that point, there was no doubt in my mind, I am done. So that was just this past November. Yes. So then, so what happened after that then? So I... Within a week of the discoveries coming out, um, and I, I already knew that we were separating at that point, but um, he moved to a friend's for about three weeks while I found a place, and then I, I separated from him, um, and we are, um, we are separated. We've been separated for seven months. The kids primarily live with me. They visit him. Um, but we will be getting divorced. Um, okay. So. And, and did, you lo- did you lose your church then? Or how has that been going? 
So the church we were at at that point, we had, we had actually, after the last discoveries, we had started going to a different church that um, a mentor of mine that I've had for about 10 years attended. And um, there was, it just seemed to have more um, accountability and discipleship going on. Um, So we decided to go there and we aren't church hoppers, but it, yeah, the last three to four years have been really rough in that area of finding a true church home that we can call home. Um, But we were there for that year and a half. And I, I came to the pastor and his wife and told them everything by far, this couple were the most empathetic, compassionate and loving people in the midst of this. Um, as far as they were not hard on me as a victim and they weren't just saying, go back to your husband. Um, however, I felt that since my husband was going to stay at that church and get and receive counsel from them, I did not feel like it was a healing thing for me to stay. And what has been hurtful with that church in general is that pretty much everyone's gone silent. No one's really reached out other than I have two people that will text me occasionally. But um, as far as like the group of women I went to Bible study with, you know, the women, you know, that I was friends with for a year and a half, I have not heard a peep. Um, Mm -hmm. They've just completely gone rogue. And I've had to grieve that. Um, I think there's different reasons for different people in that area. Um, I don't think people are malicious. I, you know, there are people of course that are judging, I'm sure. And, and thinking, oh, how dare she, um, you know, separate and, and put her kids through this and everything else that, that goes through people's minds. Um, but I would say that's been hurtful because even if you don't fully support somebody going through this, you can ask how they're doing. (laughs) Right. Right. You can reach out and say, I'm acknowledging that you're living separated from your husband with four small children with special needs. You're probably really struggling right now. How is your heart doing? Um, But I think people don't want to get in the weeds. They don't want to get money. Um, It's just uncomfortable. So that's been, that's been a hard thing. Yeah. I've noticed um, in talking to women and even in my own experience, it's almost like you, you, you have to make a, you don't have to, some women have it amazing. They have amazing churches that are so supportive, but for most women who end up getting divorced, you almost have to make a clean break and start over in a new environment where people don't know you, they don't know your past. And it's, it's sad. And yet that's just kind of the reality of the situation. It's part of the package of getting divorced. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it is. And yeah. Um, okay. So I'm wondering if you can tell us something that you've learned through this process that you wish you could go back and tell your younger self. Um, I would tell myself um, that even though there's very well-intended approaches of the church, there can be very, they can be very harmful at the same time to with the motive of saving marriages at all costs, Um, saving marriages at the cost of the individuals in them. Um, I would tell myself, we can't sacrifice people on the altar of the institution of marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, a lot of people, even Christians, not even just pastors, will cherry pick scripture. And cherry picked scripture doesn't lead to accurate interpretation of scripture. Um, and in too many ways, people cherry pick verses on divorce and submission. And they oppress victims of abuse in those ways. Um, they oppress us to go back into the arms of our abusers. And that's not how Jesus's love works. Um, and so what I would tell my, my previous self is to read the totality of scripture, to read all of, and, and I love Natalie, how you shared, how you camped out in John and read it and read it. And all you focused on was Jesus and who he was. That is what my next, my plan is for this next year of my life. I am going to read John as if it's my full-time job. And I am going to read about the love of Jesus because he, he calls us all to submit to one another. It's, it's so, it's repeated so many, so many more times than wives submit to your husbands. This Mm -hmm. one cherry picked scripture, you know, he's afforded divorce for those who have been unloved in a variety of ways. Um, You know, the, um, I'll share about that book later, but there's a, there's a book um, called divorce and remarriage in the Bible by Enstone. I think you've talked about it on the podcast. David Enstone Brewer. Yep. Yes. Um, I have that book. I haven't read it yet, but through, I went through divorce care and in divorce care, the divorce care I went to, he brought up that, you know, I know some divorce care, they focus on just two things that are biblical grounds for divorce, but the divorce care I was in was very much, no, this book is the book to read and it will show you. The Bible has a lot more to say about divorce than just what the church is saying. And there's biblical, you know, and and God, yeah, there's things throughout scripture that show this. And so, um, you know, I would tell myself it's okay to be a real person with real feelings and real needs. And, um, you know, throughout the 11 years of marriage, I feel like I've lost myself in many ways. And I'm beginning to now find myself again. And I'm, I'm embracing that I'm fully human and Mm -hmm. that I am a woman who has so much to offer and, and has, I, I have so many good things that over the years have been implied that were bad. Um, one of the things that in your workbook that I've worked through is the question of how my husband viewed women or viewed me. And I realized he, he really wasn't fond of my personality. Um, I talk too much. I, women, you know, in the the view is women talk too much or too needy and too emotional. Um, and so I'm just learning, you know, this is who I am and I'm a real human <laughs> with real feelings and real, real words to share. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm really okay with myself. I, I don't need to feel shame that I'm a talker and a verbal processor and an extroverted extrovert. Mm-hmm. Um, that's who I am. And so, um, yeah, I, to answer that question, I, I would, I would, I would give myself a lot of loving and tender care. My mom, my mom always told me, be kind and gentle to yourself. And, and those words stick with me. She told me that so many times in my life. And I, it is, it's, 
really be kind and gentle to yourself and love yourself and embrace who God made you to be really is that's the crux of building from the ground up when you've been kind of wrecking balled to a crushing pile of rubble, the way I, I see the Lord, you know, mending me and binding me back together is, is through that love of, of accepting his love for me and also loving myself enough to, to fight for this freedom. Yes, that, that's beautiful. I love that. Julie, thank you so much for being willing to take some of your time and just <clears throat> even being vulnerable and sharing your story. I know this is going to be really helpful to so many women because your story talks a lot about uh, covert abuse. And a lot there are tons of women out there who really do believe that if their husband isn't yelling at them or swearing at them or throwing things at them or hitting them, that they're not being abused. And I can relate to so much of your story in having an ex-husband who was also, you know, a great provider and much more of a calmer, behind the scenes, servant kind of a person. And all of the cognitive dissonance that that, that that provides for you when you're also seeing other things behind the scenes that are not, that are not appropriate. So anyway, thank you again, Julie. And for the rest of you, thanks for listening. Until next time, fly free.